this morning. Uh, and so here's where we're going to go. We're, we're going to spend some time. Just give, look, I'm going to give you like two uh, tips, personal tips on how you can study the Gospels for the appetite and prepare you. To, and then we're going to look at Jesus' last word on your own. And so I'm going to give you a couple tips on how to study the Gospels yourself. And then we're going to look at Jesus' life in four major movements or four major chapters. And then we're going to take a step backwards and kind of look at two big picture items that we can take away from the Gospels messages. All right, so that's where we're going to go. Let me pray and then we'll jump right in on that. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for your word. And God, thank you that through it we can know what you're like. The Bible is a story of your glory and it's best represented in the person of Jesus Christ. And Lord, that we get a chance to, to know and study your word today is a privilege and we're thankful for it. And I pray that you would speak to us from your word. Lord, you would comfort our hearts, that you would give us hope. Okay, so like I said, we're going to begin with two tips on how to really study the Gospels for yourselves. And the first one is pretty simple. It's just the tip is to understand that each of the Gospel accounts stands alone. So if you haven't ever read the Gospels yourselves, you might think, okay, there's four stories of Jesus' life. Maybe those four read as like a book, different chapters of a book. And so one of them is about the beginning of Jesus' life, and then the second one picks up where that last one left off. But it's, it's helpful for you to know that's not how the Gospels were written, that each Gospel is a separate book that is complete from beginning to end. And it tells the whole story right there. And so they read as separate books. Now you might ask, well, okay, well, why is that necessary? Why does the Bible honor? Why not just two? It's a good question. Let me give you a, a, a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek answer. One reason why is because uh, Jesus is a big deal, all right? And so he gets, he gets a lot of press, and that's okay. That's a good thing. That would make sense. So there's four books written about him. But the, the big, maybe more logical answer for this is that, uh, and it really leads us to our second tip, is to understand that each gospel account was written from the perspective of a specific author to a specific audience. And I don't know if that's been something that you're familiar with, but that each gospel account is written from the viewpoint of a specific author to a specific audience. By someone different and written to a different audience. Now this helps explain a couple things, right? Like one, it helps explain why all the gospel accounts don't say the exact same thing. And some of them contain different stories than, the other, than another gospel. And so it's like, well, why does some include something here and leave that out over here and all of that stuff? Well, it's because the author was writing for a specific purpose to a specific audience. And so what he included or didn't include was determined by the purpose he was writing to the audience he was writing to. So, for example... In the Gospel of John, John tells us about this. He, he, he just says, yeah, this is what I, I've done. In John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, so the second to last chapter in the book of John, he just makes a statement. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, the ones that he wrote, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. In other words, John is saying, okay, I couldn't possibly include everything that Jesus did, so I had to pick and choose. And what I chose to include are the things that I, like, will help you understand that Jesus is the Son of God and to help you see that you should believe in him, and by doing so, you have life in his name. 
So each author of the Gospels took, not made up, but took what really happened in Jesus' life, but they couldn't share everything that happened, so they chose specific things to help communicate a specific message to a specific audience. And when you understand that, man, that's helpful. Now also know that they were all written by a dip from the viewpoint of their author. And so if you read through the Gospels, you might see that the same story does show up a couple different times. But it's not written the exact same way. You think, well, why is that? Because the Gospels are written from the viewpoint of their author. And so one might zero in on some details. The other might add some other details that they saw from their viewpoint. That's not a contradiction. That's just two different viewpoints looking at the same thing and writing from their viewpoint. So that's, that's just helpful stuff for you to understand as you study the Gospels yourself. That there's, there, there are four separate books and they're each written from the viewpoint of its author with a specific audience in mind. All right, so... Maybe make this make a little bit more sense to you. I've got a little chart up here I'll show you. And I've got this resource printed off for you. So don't feel like you have to, you know, scribble all this down real quick on your, on your <laughs> outline. But let me just, I won't walk through all this. But let me give you just a couple examples. So like for the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. Matthew was written by one of the 12 disciples whose name was Matthew. And uh, he was writing primarily to a Jewish audience. And so he emphasizes in his gospel account, Jesus' life, how Jesus was the prophesied king, that he's the Messiah. And one way that he makes, like, emphasizes that is that Matthew includes a ton of Old Testament prophecies showing how Jesus fulfilled those prophecies. All right, and so moving on to the gospel of Mark. Well, Mark was written as a... Uh, Peter's eyewitness account of Jesus' life, and he was writing primarily to a Roman audience. And so Mark emphasizes how Jesus is the obedient servant who takes orders from his father and follows through with them perfectly and courageously. And the reason that Mark emphasizes this character quality of Jesus is because he was writing to a Roman audience that really cared and had great value of that kind of character. So he writes and says, like, this is Jesus perfectly, perfectly fulfilled and modeled the kind of character that you guys value. Y'all need to lean in and look into who this guy was. I like the gospel of Luke. Luke was a Greek physician, and he was writing to a Greek audience. And Luke makes it known in his gospel account that he painstakingly researched his account about Jesus' life as a companion of Paul and the other apostles. So he gets these eyewitness accounts from these other apostles, and he writes down the gospel of Jesus from, in the book of Luke, and he's writing to this Greek audience, emphasizing how Jesus is the perfect man. In order to communicate to the Greek culture, where the philosophers were constantly looking for the character qualities that make up the perfect man. And Luke is saying, look, Jesus is that guy you've been looking for. He's the perfect, he's the perfect man. He's the perfect character. Look, in, look at him. Lean into him. See who he is and what he did for you. And then the gospel, John, the final gospel, he's a disciple. He writes to all audiences. So he's writing to a Jewish audience, Greek audience, Roman audience, us, all, all audiences. And he writes emphasizing that Jesus is the son of God. And so, like, one thing that John includes in his gospel accounts is how, you know, in the Old Testament, the covenant name for God is the name Yahweh, meaning I am. And in the book of John, John talks about how Jesus, eight different times, makes that claim for himself. that He claims to be 
I am. It's, a, it's this claim of being God. That, that's John's big emphasis. So th- those are just a couple of things. I mean, certainly can go further. And like I said, I have a resource for you out at the resource table. That's this chart plus more details. That kind of shows you some of the dis- distinctives of the different gospel accounts. Also on the back side of that resource, guys, is another sheet that talks about the reliability of the gospel accounts. Because you might be thinking, okay, if Jesus is so big deal and we got to study him, but aren't the gospels, aren't they just copies of a copy of a copy? And how do we know that this is actually what Jesus was really like, what Jesus really did? Well, that, that article will speak to those questions. I encourage you to pick that up. You'll find that it's not a copy of a copy of a copy and that it is a great reason to believe that it's completely reliable. But anyways, pick that up. I'd love to talk about that more, but I, I don't have time for it this morning. But those are just a few ways to show some distinctives within the different gospel accounts. But having said that, one thing that you need to know is that what's true on all four gospels is that Jesus is clearly communicated. He is uh, 100% man, his, his humanity is spoken of, and he's 100% God, that his deity is spoken of, that he's God. And in all of the gospel accounts, you see the same story. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so what I want to do now is just move into that in our, our, our time together and really look at these four key movements or chapters, if you will, in Jesus' life. I wish we could go just step by step every single thing, but we, we, we just don't have time. So let me kind of give in a little bit of a broad perspective and walk through the story of what the Gospels communicate about Jesus' life. And we'll begin here with his early life which is like his childhood up through baptism, which happened when he was 30 years old. So like Matthew and Luke talk about Jesus' birth. If you've been around here in Christmas, you're very familiar with this. He's born of the Virgin Mary, uh, who's betrothed to Joseph, that there's a big... There's a, uh, they go to Bethlehem, and then uh, there's a, uh, 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 the the wise men come and visit. I'm sorry, I'm trying to decide what all to include here. But uh, the wise men come and visit, and then uh, they talk to Herod. Herod hears that there's been one that's been born in Bethlehem that's going to be a king, and it's a fulfillment of the prophecy. And so they decide, he says, okay, we're going to kill all the babies in in that region, Mary and Joseph get tipped off on this, and so they take Jesus on his one international trip. He goes to Egypt, and he hides out there for a little while with, his, with, his, with Mary and Joseph. And then after a couple of years, they move back into the Galilee region and settle in the city of, of Nazareth. We don't hear anything else about Jesus' upbringing until uh, when he's 12 years old. And there's this little snippet where he, he goes to visit the scribes and, and the rabbis at the temple. And, the, and they are just mesmerized by Jesus' knowledge of God. And like they, he's asking them questions they don't know how to answer. He's answering the questions for them. And it's like they blows away. And then, and then he goes back to Nazareth. And again, we don't hear from him until... He appears at the, at the, river, uh, the Jordan River where John the Baptist is baptizing. And he, John the Baptist announces, here's the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the earth. And Jesus comes and is baptized. And all four gospel accounts include this, that when Jesus is baptized, the Spirit of God descends on Jesus. And a voice from heaven clearly speaks and says, this is my son, the one I love, in him I am well pleased. And then Jesus 
begins his earthly ministry, which takes us into the next chapter of Jesus' life. So early ministry, and it can be best summed up as a time of initial acceptance. Time of initial acceptance. For you see, Jesus came in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of a Savior who came to offer salvation and, hear this, he also came to offer the true kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus' offer was not confusing. That He came both to be the suffering servant as the prophecies in the Old Testament spoke of, and he came to be the reigning king. He came to offer both salvation and the kingdom to the nation of Israel. And initially, and people were all over that. They flocked to him. They, 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 crowds gathered around him. Even uh, religious leaders initially were intrigued by him. Nicodemus coming to him at the night and saying, hey, there's a few of us that we, we think you have to be from God. I mean, no one can do the things that you're doing if they're, if they're not from God. And so there's this, this time of this great acceptance. And they're drawn to Jesus' teaching because he, he teaches in a way that they're just not used to with this authority and what his message is different from the Pharisees' message. Like you think about... The the Sermon on the Mount, and he's teaching, he's talking about how what God cares about is a righteousness that comes from the heart, that it's not all about you keeping the rules. In fact, you can keep the rules, but from uh, impure motives, and it not be honoring to God. And he's talking about how, you know, he's going against the Pharisees' message that says, like, for God to love you, you have to keep all the rules. And Jesus says, no, 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 listen, God already loves you. See, for God so loved the world that he sent me. (laughs) I am here because God loves you. And so you need to know that I'm here because you need a Savior. And God loves you enough to provide you a Savior. See, because you're condemned already. Your heart condemns you. So I've come to to save you. And it's, man, it's teachings like that that just really makes Jesus stand out. Because the Old Testament's been clear. Like, there's no one, no one can save themselves, much less save the the whole world, no prophet, priest, or king could, could possibly do that. And yet here Jesus is saying, man, I, I'm here to, to save you, to save the world. People are interested and they're intrigued. And then, of course, Jesus is doing all of these amazing miracles. And he's doing the miracles not to get people to, like, just get his, just to get attention and to be, like, you know, loved by everybody. No, he's actually doing the miracles in order to really heal people because he loves people. And to give people a glimpse of what the kingdom will be like, where everything is set right. People are drawn. And then in Matthew chapter 12, something happens. It's a very pivotal time. In fact, if you have a Bible, go to that chapter, Matthew chapter 12. I want you to see this for yourself because this is kind of a turning point in Jesus' ministry. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Let me read it for us. Matthew 12, 22 says, And then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Now, don't miss this, right? They say, uh, Can this be the son of David? Like, Do you see what they're asking, right? Could this be the promised one? Like, could, can this be the Messiah? Can, can this be the, the root of Jesse, the, the one that we've said, been told is going to come and reign on the Davidic throne? Is this, is this the Messiah? Next verse says, uh, but what, we see the religious leader's response. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out de- demons. 
crowd is asking. I said, is this the Messiah? I think this is the Messiah. This is the long-awaited promised one. And the religious leaders say, no, 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 no. This is not the Messiah. This, is, this, this man is from the devil. He's of the devil. Well, Jesus confronts that. He says that that's the unpardonable sin, to take the work of God and to credit it to Satan and to say the very act of God's salvation, of casting out a, a demon from a, a man, that healing him of, of being blind and of not being able to speak and saying, attributing that not to the work and salvation of God, but to Satan himself. He's like, that's, that is unbelievable rejection. And so uh, look at what happens in verse 38, a couple of verses down. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Right? And you think, time out. Like, you just, isn't that what just happened? Like, I just cast out a demon. I just made a guy who couldn't see, see, and the one who couldn't speak, speak. Like, isn't that what just took place? And then you saw it, and then you said I was from the devil. And now you want another sign? And he goes on, he says this in verse 39. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to, uh, no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So we ask, okay, well, what's the sign of the prophet Jonah? Verse 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What's he talking about here? He's talking about his crucifixion and his resurrection. He's talking about his, his death and how he's going to come back to life. He says, that's the only sign you're going to get. My crucifixion, my burial, and my resurrection. And then see what he says next. Verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. In other words, Jesus is saying, And the men of Jonah, went, the men that Jonah went to and preached to, they're going to be witnesses for the prosecution against this generation. Because they listened to a prophet, but the one that is greater than a prophet is here, the true Messiah, and you will not listen to him. Even though I've shown you who I am. You have rejected me. Because this is a turning point in Jesus' ministry. In fact, chapter 13, the very next chapter, just a couple of verses later, what we see is that Jesus begins from that point on to teach with parables. And his disciples hear him start teaching in parables, and they say, Jesus, why, why, why don't you just speak clearly? Why don't, why, like, what? I don't understand. And he says, yeah, I'm now teaching this way because they've rejected me. So I'm no longer going to teach in a way for them to hear, only for you guys to understand. Because the crowds, the people, the religious leaders, they've rejected me. So Jesus came to offer the kingdom, but he was rejected by the people. And so he turns, and here he begins his journey to the cross with a small band of followers. That moves into the next chapter of Jesus' life. You can talk about just later ministry where you just see this growing rejection. In fact, if you go to Mark chapter 8, which is halfway through Mark's gospel, right, Mark's gospel 16 chapters, is halfway point, you see this change also taking place there. In Mark 8, verses 27 through 29, we read this. And, when, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? 
And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others say one of the prophets. They could have added, the religious leaders say that you're of the devil. All right, everyone's got your ideas out there. But then verse 9, Jesus asked him, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You're the promised one. You're the anointed one. You're the one we've been waiting for. And Jesus says, verse 31, and then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And do you think that his disciples liked that? No, not at all. I mean, they were like, okay, we figured it out. You are the Messiah. And the next thing that Jesus is saying is, I am the Messiah, and now I'm going to die. And they're like, wait, wait a second. The Messiah, no, you don't need to do that. No, no, no. Like, hang on. And so Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Like, hey, there's no way you can do this, Jesus. You can't die. Verse 33, by tur- uh, but turning and seeing his disciples, he, re- he, Jesus, rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. For you're not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. Next verse, verse 34. Jesus turns to the crowd, along with all the rest of his disciples. And he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And from this point on, guys, Jesus puts his focus and his attention on his disciples And this crowd, this little crowd that has now been faithful to him. And he begins his journey into Jerusalem to the cross. To be the savior of the world. He enters Jerusalem and uh, as he's going through the gates, the people are there. And they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, save us. But just a couple days later, that same crowd will be standing shouting crucify him crucify him crucify him see that leads us to the final chapter of Jesus life the death and resurrection the final rejection you know what's really fascinating in the book of John chapters 13 through 21 basically the third of the book of John covers the last 43 days of Jesus' life before he ascends to the, ascends to the Father. So it, it covers the, the day, the night before Jesus, or the night of Jesus' betrayal. It covers his crucifixion, the time in the grave, his resurrection, and the 40 days that he is alive afterwards. In fact, in all of the Gospels, you see a great emphasis put on the, the events that led directly up to the crucifixion, the crucifixion, his resurrection, and then his commissioning afterwards. And so it's like the Gospels understood, like this, the Gospel writers understood, that's, that's really important. It gives a lot of time to that in, in, in all the Gospels. And so it's like, pay attention to this. They knew that this was so important for us to get. But that story, guys, this final chapter, his death, his crucifixion, his resurrection, it's ugly. The people reject Jesus fully. And they you start seeing this happen really at the very beginning, at the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where this chapter begins, where Jesus is in the garden praying to the Father and asking, Father, is, is there any way this cup can be like, taken from me where I don't have to do this? 
And he says, but not my will, but yours be done. And the father sends Jesus on his way. And Jesus is betrayed. And then he's this just joke of a, of a trial. and No one can get there testimonies to line up and everyone's just telling lies and then they take him before Pilate and Pilate keeps saying like this man's not guilty I don't want to do this but Pilate is forced his hands forced by the religious leaders of the day and then they have Jesus beaten and mocked flogged and then crucified and Jesus hangs on the cross for six hours dies in the most vile way on the cross, he suffers both physically, but also emotionally, relationally. As on the cross, he's forsaken by the Father. In the book of Isaiah, written 600 years before this, tells us why Jesus was hung on the cross. That because we, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us, every single one of us, has turned our, to our own way. But God has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity or sin of us all. And Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. And the Apostle Paul, later writing in the book of Romans, would tell us that that Jesus on the cross is the greatest demonstration of God's love for us, that God would love us this much that while we were still sinners, Christ would die for us. And Jesus does die on the cross. And then he's buried. And on the third day he rises again. And his disciples... They see him alive. And then they go from being people that were scared to death, cowards who were hiding, thinking they were next on the hit list, that they were going to be the next ones killed. And so they're hiding out, and then they see the resurrected Jesus, and they're completely changed. They become changed men to where they, they go to where they're no longer cowards, but they're courageous, telling people about Jesus and pointing people to Jesus and not being afraid of what would happen to him. And Jesus spends 40 days after his resurrection, with his followers, confirming that he is indeed alive, and then teaching them about what they need to do next, and commissioning them to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, that every man, woman, and child, that that everybody would hear what Jesus has done for them. You guys, that's the gospel's. That's the gospel story in a nutshell. Now, I didn't do it full justice by any means. So again, I want to encourage you, go read it. Go read it for yourself. Spend time in the word. Study this. See the person of Jesus. He's absolutely amazing. But for now, as I, you know, get ready to wrap up, I want to just take a step back and look at two kind of big picture elements that I want to make sure we don't miss when it comes to the message of the gospel. And the first of those big pictures is this, that Jesus is who the entire Old Testament had been pointing to. He's the Savior who did what no one else could do. That he, he is the one that all of the last nine weeks that we've been going through the every section of the Bible, he's the one that, that it's been building to, and he's the one who it's all been about. In fact, one of the 
conversations that, you know, if I had a chance to get a, a time machine and go back to here and listen in on any conversation in all of history, one of them, perhaps the one that would be top on the list, would be a conversation that took place between Jesus and a couple of his followers after his resurrection. And it's recorded in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 27. And these, these guys are these followers of Jesus who haven't yet seen Jesus resurrected yet. They've heard rumors that he's alive again, but they don't understand it, and they can't make sense of it, and they're just like, like talking amongst themselves, and then Jesus is there, but they don't recognize it as Jesus. And in the midst of their conversation, Jesus says this, verse 26, Luke chapter 24, says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And Jesus says, like, beginning with Moses, so beginning with the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, all the way through the prophets, all the way through the end of the Old Testament, Jesus opens up the scriptures to them and begins to help them see how everything has been pointed to him. Like, wouldn't you not have loved to have been there for that Bible lesson? <laughs> that would have been a good one. I wish those guys had, uh, you know, recorded that and passed it on. But I heard a, a, a pastor, a hero of the faith of mine, uh, Tim Keller, in a message, say something that I wonder if it wouldn't have sounded a little bit like what this conversation with Jesus' followers would have sounded like. He says this. He says, oh, speaking about how Jesus is really the fulfillment of everyone who came before him and the one that everyone pointed to. He says, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden whose obedience is imputed to us. I mean, think about Adam, right? Adam failed the test in the garden, the garden of Eden, and whose, whose unrighteousness, his disobedience was imputed to us. But where Jesus, Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane passes the test in the garden and whose righteousness is imputed to us. Or Jesus is the true and better able, though innocently slain, has blood now that cries out not for our condemnation, but our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave the comfortable and familiar and to go out into the void, not knowing whither he went in order to create a new people of God. That Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount but was, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love for me, now we can look to God taking his son up the Mount of Calvary and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better Job, who truly, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. And Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who, who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace, but left the ultimate and heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who, who was cast out in a storm so that we could be brought in. That Jesus is the true and better Isaiah who knowing the holiness of God answered God's call of whom shall I send? 
by saying, send me, so that he could save us and bring us into the presence of the holiness of God, that Jesus is the real Passover lamb who was truly innocent and unblemished, but was slain so the wrath of God would pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true, true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true light, the true bread of heaven given freely to us to satisfy us like nothing else can. Guys, you see, Jesus is a hero of the story. He's who the whole Bible is about. And Jesus is the one we've all looked for, that before the cross, everyone was looking for. He's passed the cross. We're all looking still for. We need to look back to him. It's who everything is about. He is God. He's the Savior of the world. That's why the end of the story ends with us around his throne saying, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And friends, open up your Bible. And spend time with God because God reveals himself to us through this. The whole story is a story of his glory made known in the person of Jesus Christ. Guys, get to know your God. He's amazing. He's amazing. He's one that the whole Old Testament has been pointing to. Second thing that I want to make sure that we don't miss is this. Jesus lived, died, and rose again to save us, and to renew the world. Because this past week has reminded us afresh just how broken this world is and how desperately we need someone who can set it right and how we long to have justice for wrongs and yet at the same time we wish that we didn't have to stand before a judge personally but we certainly want every right to be made every wrong to be made right and every injustice to go punished instead of unpunished except for our injustices which we wish we could somehow get out of we need someone who can make things new, fix the broken. And all of the murders that happened this week are completely tragic and horrific. And the undercurrent of, of uh, racism in our country is something that we cannot turn a blind eye to. And it's not lost on me that I'm speaking to a, a congregation that's primarily all white. And guys, like, we got to ask the hard questions and do the things that we need to do to figure out how we can bridge gaps that are clearly not fully being bridged. And like, I speak to you as a, as a, as a father of a seven-year-old black son. My son Enoch, who we ado adopted from Uganda, and I say, like, this week scares me. And it tells like, I don't know the best way to raise my son in our country. And I hate that. Because all of that points to the fact that our world is broken and in desperate and need of a Savior. And guys, the incredible news of the gospel is that this, we have a Savior. And that Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. 
He's the hope of the world. He's the one person who's done the hard work that can make everything right. And he's promised us, and we've seen throughout all of this study, that God keeps his promises. He's promised us that he will one day make all things new. And that you personally can experience that by putting your faith in him alone for the forgiveness of your sins. Trusting that he died for you. He took your place for your sins. And because Jesus loves you, he's your savior. And you can enter into a relationship with him where you know one day you will stand with him in glory. He will wipe away every tear. And he will right every wrong. Jesus, guys, is the hope of the world. He's the hope of the world. Got a great African-American pastor friend here in, here in Austin. His name's Tori. He wrote something. I asked for permission to share it and just captures all of this. He wrote this this week. He said, in the midst of all these terrible things happening recently, here's our hope. Jesus died for the ignorant and racist who run their mouths without empathy or knowledge. And Jesus died for the criminal and offender before they committed any crime, knowing they would commit crimes regardless. And Jesus died for the liar and the self-righteous. And Jesus died for the wrongful and unjust deaths. Jesus died for the heterosexual and the homosexual. Jesus died for those who wish to remove themselves and not understand the pain others are feeling. And Jesus died for men, women, black, white, brown, lost, saved. Jesus died for Hillary and Donald. Jesus died for Alton and Philando. Jesus died for good and crooked cops. In fact, let's be honest, he wrote. It was crooked cops that killed Jesus. That government unjustly murdered him. He asked for their forgiveness anyway. He entrusted true judgment to come from the Father, and until that happens, he longed for their salvation. Jesus cares about justice far more than you who are calling for facts, and justice will come. Jesus felt the pain of sin and death far more than you who are struggling to understand and cope with all this pain. Jesus today feels far deeper pain at the penalty of sin no matter which side it comes from. Jesus knows he loves, he cares. The cross proves that. You may not care about all of this, but he does deeply. You may care deeply about this. Take comfort. He cares even more. He died and drank the wrath of God for this. He may seem distant. He's not. He incarnated. He moved into the neighborhood. He cares. Know that he's going to set things right. Until then, please feel the urgency to allow the gospel to transform your life, that it may transform those around you, that these tragedies and effects of sin may be felt less and less. Guys, Jesus is the hope of the world. He's your hope, and he's my hope. He's the gift of God to us, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. How in the world then do we respond to this incredible message? Well, let me offer up two things as we close. First, is if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, my urge to you, is to respond with belief and then with praise. That you would believe that Jesus died for you and then where you sit right now, you would admit you're a sinner. You can't save yourself. You fall short of the glory of God. You're not perfect. 
and you need a Savior, and you would say, I believe that Jesus is my Savior. He died in my place, that he took the penalty I deserved, and he bore it for me. And he rose again, and he's made a way, the only way for me, to be right with God, reconciled and adopted into his family. Would you believe that right now? You are told at this moment, you're transferred from, light, from, from death to life, from darkness to light. And then may you praise God for the gift of Jesus. May you praise him, and then we're going to end in song. You praise him now. And may you leave this place and praise him to your friends and family to tell them what he's done. And for the rest of you, if you've already placed your faith in Christ, what I would say is may we remember and praise. May we remember who Jesus is and what Jesus did for us. In fact, we're going to take communion. And this is a way for us to remember, for us to hold in our hands the bread and the cup and remember that this symbolizes Jesus' body broken for us and his blood spilled for us, that Jesus died for you, that you could be made right with God. May we remember and then may it lead us to praise. And let us lift our voice as loud as we sing. And then may we leave this place and continue to praise Jesus for what he's done. For he is the hope of the world. He's your hope and he's mine. Let me pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the gift of Jesus. He is our, he is our hope. And God, Lord, we live in a world that desperately needs hope and is broken but God, not broken beyond repair. Because you, you are amazing. Lord, and you send your son to die for us. And Lord, we remember that now and we praise you for it. And may we then live out in his power to be agents of change in this world, to give people a glimpse of the kingdom that's to come. And we love you. May you be honored during this time. Amen.